0: Welcome to 52 Weeks of Hope. This is where you get to hear how to feel happy, balanced, and worthwhile. How to make that lonely ache vanish and feel empowered, confident, and secure. I'm Lauren Abrams, and I get to help you feel that magic again since going through my own dark night of the soul by chatting with incredible leaders, healers, and change agents who give us their messages of hope after overcoming challenges of their own. And today we're talking to the amazing Andre Norman. Andre's known for going from a 100-year prison sentence to Harvard Fellowship, a featured speaker at MIT, London Business School, and an associate with IPO and Genius Academy, but like all of us, he's so much more than everything that I could list here right now. He's here today to tell you that it's never too late or too hard to pursue your dreams. Andre travels the world inspiring others, not just in prisons and jails, but everywhere to face their traumas and break free from your own prison that you may not even be aware that you're in and live your dreams. A remarkable story at every turn. Welcome to 52 Weeks of Hope, Andre Norman
1: it is me touchdown we are here
0: yeah i love that you say touchdown everybody's got a story and you definitely have a remarkable one there's so many questions i have from how did you get to third grade without being able to read and some of your story reads like the 50s in the south yet i'm shocked that you're from boston so first of all how did you end up in prison because to me like you're this articulate gracious gentleman
1: well I ended up in prison mainly the same reason why the other 2.2 million people end up in prison. I would say some of it is bad guidance. Some of it is dysfunctional family. But the main reason I discovered why people go to prison is we're taught to quit. And when you start quitting, you run out of good options, which only leaves you negative options. So yes, I grew up in the inner city. Yes, I grew up in a dysfunctional house. Yes, I grew up in a bad neighborhood. Yes, I didn't have the best of everything but that's not the sole reason I went to prison. I was taught as a young man that quitting was okay. So I quit on track and field. I quit on a band. I quit on leadership. I quit on the choir. I quit on everything that I had in my life, which only left me negative options. And when you have no positives and it's all negatives and negatives in our scenario generally lead you to death or prison or addiction. And I ended up in prison. Yeah.
0: And there's probably plenty of addicts in there too. So
1: there's tons of addicts, there's tons of quitters. And those are the main two. And even to get to addiction is usually quitting because you've been faced with something that's bigger than you and you run from it to drugs. Absolutely.
0: Yep. So why did you quit choir? Why did you quit leadership? Why did you quit? Do you know now? In hindsight, it's always everything. Counseling
1: does wonders. Yes. So (laughs) after going through numerous therapy sessions and sitting down and digging, the craziest thing was my core quitting story That's what you're looking for. What's the story that led you to quitting? My core quitting story was when my father walked out on us when I was in the first grade, he told me quitting was okay by doing that. That's what I internalized, that quitting is okay. And from then forward, quitting became part of my personality.
0: That's so interesting. So when did you first start quitting and how did that lead you to jail, prison?
1: And well, through of- elementary school, you just, you don't know the difference between poor, not poor, cool, uncool, okay. everybody's okay in elementary school. Absolutely. I got to middle school and things weren't going, there was nothing really to quit about in elementary school. Yeah. I didn't do well in class, but that wasn't a big deal. I didn't have the cool clothes, but nobody told me. And yeah. I got to middle school, and kids told me I didn't have the cool clothes and I couldn't afford to pay for lunch. And they started getting on me about life stuff. Instead of standing up or finding a way to stand up, I quit. And I copped out and I started selling weed in the park after school so I can get this stuff to get people to like me.
0: Okay, now I understand that. And then how did you end up in prison for, I mean, I can understand small crime and petty theft kinds of things and you end up in and out, but a hundred year jail sentence?
1: What happens is we're in New York City and you start walking West, at some point you're gonna hit California. It's gonna be a really long walk, (laughs) but at some point you're gonna hit California and that's it, end of your journey. In criminality, I started out shoplifting in the store and I walked down that path. It doesn't matter how fast you walk or how slow you walk. If you're on the wrong street, you're gonna get to the same destination. You get on 90 West, you're gonna hit California at some point. And I got on that criminality road at the shoplifting level then selling weed level, then carrying gun level, then robbery level. You just, it's a path. And you just keep walking and how far you make it is how far you make it. That's how it works. I was on the wrong path. It didn't matter how slow I was walking.
0: This is so interesting. I never thought of that. I was on a similar path. People look at me and they're like, But you got off it. Years ago. Yes. But your story is so remarkable. But I think I started that way too, but I never saw a gun. I mean, there's just difference. But
1: But what happens is, People end up where they end up, not because of the destination, but because of the path that they're on. Yeah. So if you're an intern at Nassau, it shouldn't shock anybody that you become an engineer. Right. If you're a runner for a drug dealer, it doesn't shouldn't be shocking that you become a drug dealer. So if you get on that path, it's, the path is what it is. You just have to be clear on the environment. That's what all the wonderful people do. We try to control the environments we put our kids in because it puts them on a certain path. So we want them to be at this school, we want them to be in this after-school program, we want them to be in this situation, this summer camp. It's all about the path. My son, next year, will graduate high school and go to Columbia University in New York. Why? Because when he was a baby, we put him in the right preschool, we put him in the right kidney garden, we put him in the right elementary school, we put him in the right middle school, the right high school, yeah. and there was a path. He's not going to Columbia by chance.
0: You also paid attention. I mean, my parents didn't pay attention. Your parents probably didn't pay attention. But
1: paying attention, I cannot pay attention as often as I should if he's on the right path. It doesn't mean he can't get in trouble or wrong. His path is pointed to Ivy League. And that was a discussion me and my ex-wife had when we were dating. She said, all of my kids will go to Ivy League schools. Is that a problem? I was like, no. And we picked a path for him before he was born. That's
0: amazing. Yeah. So, wait, let's go back to how did you even advance without knowing how to read?
1: Oh, it's public school that is pushing through, called social promotion. Okay. You get old enough that it's move you along. Okay, I mean that's called public school in America. Yeah. In the inner city, you don't have to know how to read. <laughs> no prerequisite to know how to read or write in American public school if you're in the city. All right.
0: I mean, I went through public school, but I, I thought we all knew how to read even in elementary school. But maybe not. Maybe I was oh, just no, that's for.
1: the thing. Why would you think that? I don't know. Oh, why would you think that's like saying, well, I guess everybody goes to bed. Nobody goes to bed hungry. Why would you think that?
0: Oh yeah, no, I didn't think that. No, no, no
1: what think, but it's the but, same thing. Yeah. People go to bed hungry. People go to schools that don't teach. There are people in prison who deserve to be, and there's some people in prison who don't deserve to be. And there's some people in office who are doing great things. and some people in office who are doing some questionable things. So it's, it's never what we think it is. It is what it is.
0: I think because I was such a, I escaped in books before I discovered other things to d- escape in. So I just assumed everybody read. I don't know. I don't think.
1: Yeah. And that's what happens when we start talking about social justice, when we start talking about equity and fair systems, nothing against you or anybody else. People see the world from their lens.
0: Oh, absolutely. So
1: like, everybody can read. Everybody has access to books. And that's not the reality of everybody. And then we're sitting back and saying, wow, think about this. I am the first generation in our family to be born in a hospital. My father was born in the house because he was Black. My grandfather was born in the house. My great-grandfather was born. I'm the first generation to legally be born in a hospital. And the only reason why that happened, because we moved from the South to the North when I was born. Had my family stayed in Virginia, I'd have been born in the house. And my son would have been the first generation legally born in the hospital. People don't realize that it's like, oh, you look at inequality, oh, that's three generations ago. Why are you still mad? it's not my aunts my uncles yeah my grandmother they were all born at home with a midwife they weren't allowed to have medical care so it's not like upset but it is what it is this people don't understand that it's not a thousand years ago inequality was happening we're talking about oh, this generation
0: definitely. so definitely not so when i've listened to you tell your story about being called the n-word i seriously i listen to these stories and i think that sounds like the 50s in the south And I was shocked it was Boston that they're throwing rocks at you and so on. And you start talking about the trauma that you suffered.
1: The thing with Boston that people don't get, down South is perceived to be racist because that's where slavery had its root. And it was just, you're less than, and we're going to treat you like that, and that's just the way it is. The North was deemed as a liberal place, except for when integration started. When Blacks lived on their side of town, and whites lived on their side of town, it wasn't a big deal. But then we started saying Blacks could have city jobs. The difference between, say, Los Angeles or New York, which are big cities, and Boston, Los Angeles has 30,000 cops. Boston might have 1,500 cops. So when the list comes out for police service, they know the 20, the 50 names on the list. Everybody knows everybody because the city's so small. So when they started saying, well, we have to put minorities on this list and they put them ahead of white people, you knew exactly. It wasn't that the black guy got the job. No, the black guy took your son's job and everybody knows you and your son since infinity. So it was personal. So everything in Boston wasn't just, oh, black people are getting jobs. No, black people are taking our jobs specifically By name and by address, that's why it was so personal for them. California, you hired 20 blacks, stick them in Watts. New York, you hired 20 blacks, stick them in the Bronx. Nobody knows. But in Boston, they count every job, city, police, fire, secretary, schools, was a list. And they live by the list. Now all of a sudden, the list is being jumped and you knew who was getting jumped over. You didn't know the 20 guys lost their job out in the Bronx. You didn't know the 20 guys lost their job out in South Central. You know the ten people from Dorchester, Roxbury, or South Boston who lost their jobs you—you're sitting at that. the bar with the dad. It's That's, personal.
0: Yeah, I've never lived there. My son's in school there now, so I went and I was like, "This is my favorite city." For you like, "Like this place is great." Anyway, it's huh? a great—it's
1: a great city to visit. Is making great strides as a country. We're making strides. <laughs> so I'm not trying to double back and say, "Hey, Boston." No, Boston is what it is. A country. Is indicative of the country we have made yeah. strides. I went to as a sheriff swearing in the other day in a town my father came from, and they left that town because of bad treatment of blacks. And I watched the sheriff being installed the other day, sworn in, and it, not to say it was better, but the whole room was black. Every sheriff in the department, I'm like, wow, what do white people at? And that wasn't the case when my father was born. So I'm not saying 100% black sheriffs makes it better. But it's definitely different in his day. Yeah, definitely. Same thing in Richmond. In same oh, major cities: Chicago, New York, Boston, Houston. All black mayors. No such thing in the '70s.
0: Oh no, no, definitely not.
1: So we. Are, I mean, I'm not saying simply because we have black mayors in Atlanta, Houston, New York, and Chicago that the world is better. But that's progression yeah there are this clear progress we get to have our own good and bad black politicians i
0: remember Marion barry in dc so we don't go there He's, he was a start and then it went kind of tanked he
1: was good and bad at yeah, time. yeah yeah yeah
0: <laughs> so how did you get out of prison when you're facing a hundred year jail sentence
1: the same way the way i got out of prison is the same way anybody's listening to this and get out of this situation you sit down and you tell yourself the truth where am i Who am I? And I had to tell the truth. I'm black. I'm a gang member. I'm angry. I'm violent. I can't read well. I made a list of, I come from a dysfunctional family. I told myself the truth and I stopped lying to myself. And I said, okay, these are all my truths. Now, where do I want to go? And my goal was to go to Harvard. So I said, now what's inside of me is stopping this dream from happening. Then I had my list of truths. Okay, I can't read well. So guess what I did? I went to school and got a GED. I learned how to read well. Second, I had a slight anger management problem. So, wow, they had anger management programs. I went to anger management. Okay, I got all this time. They had a law library. So I went to the law library and I taught myself the law. And I was willing to do the work to change my life. A lot of people say, well, life isn't fair. It's not about was it fair or not. Yeah. Where do I want to go and what's in my way? And 99.9% of what was in my way was me.
0: I think that's always the case.
1: <laughs> but everybody's like, says, sure. well... Blame it on somebody else. It's blaming on somebody else. That way I'm not responsible and I can be a victim versus being overcomer.
0: But you're in prison facing all this. I mean, you know. what?
1: I had it. I I wasn't facing it. I had it.
0: Yeah. Okay. So what gave you that spark of hope? What made you want to do anything other than the day in, day out drudgery?
1: I mean, what happens is we all get to a point of. We get burnt out. We hit rock bottom. Enough is enough. The light comes on. And there's all the different reasons why people snap out of it. And they finally... I've been saying to myself, I'm going to lose weight for two years. Then I bought a Peloton and it sits in my front room. I bought the gym shorts. They sit in my closet. I got it. I literally have to go to LA membership, LA Fitness. I did and canceled the membership. I've been paying for six months. I haven't gone once. So we say things, then we don't do them. So I came to the point of saying... Yo, this life sucks. That's what it can This life, I'm locked in a cell all day. I can't go outside. I don't get fresh air. I don't get to see the sun. I don't get to see my family. I'm in a box. And I stopped telling myself it was cool.
0: So that's it. You quit lying to yourself. That's what I said. Was there any kind of an aha moment? Like, is there something or is it just, it wasn't even that big of a deal? It was just that moment where you're like, oh. My moment
1: was... I wanted to be the number one guy in the system. And I made it to number three. And I had a chance to become number one. It was a circumstance presented itself. And had I done it, in theory, I'd have been number one. Number one in
0: the prison system? Like the baddest or the best?
1: I was Mike Tyson at the penitentiary. Yeah. When I got to that line, I looked across. I saw for what it was. I was going to become the king of nowhere.
0: Right. Okay. I
1: was like, whoa, this is what it is? It was like, like when Dorothy runs through the whole land of Oz and she makes it to the castle and she pulls a curtain back and it's a guy pulling switches. That's how I felt.
0: Yeah. <laughs> okay.
1: And this is a crazy thing about the wizard of Oz. Nobody in Oz cared that the wizard was fake. Yeah. Nobody cared that the wizard was fake. They was fine with their little roles in their life because they had purpose that they could lie to themselves. I'm in Oz and the king is happy. Well, I was I was Dorothy. I pulled the curtain because I wanted something more and I saw for what it was. It was like, this is all fake. And I couldn't support it anymore. And I couldn't lie to myself anymore.
0: So when you started going to classes, did it have a domino effect where other people were like, I want to do this too? Or were they giving you a hard time? And they're like, what did you do, Andre?
1: Initially, everybody thought I went crazy. Mm -hmm. Because Andre's the guy's on the yard pushing the weight. Andre's the guy's always involved in stuff, negative. Andre's the guy at the center of everything that you could think of. When I walked away from that, it was like, what does he do? It's like when Michael Jordan said, I'm going to go play baseball. Yeah, right. (laughs) They're like, what are you talking about? You can't play. You're the best basketball player in the world. You can't play baseball. And he went and he played baseball. I said, I don't want to do this game thing anymore. I'm going to go play baseball. And they're like, what are you talking about? You're the best at it. You can't walk away. But imagine if Michael Jordan had become an all-star baseball player. He'd have never come back. Yeah. So when I switched over, I got good at it. I got good at being good. And it was space to grow. And so I got on that track. And I saw and I believed in what was going to come. And I could see the numbers, like he never hit the numbers. Had Michael Jordan been hitting that ball out of the park, he wouldn't have came back to basketball. Yeah. And had I tried this good route and had bad successes, I might not have stayed. I might have went back to front, from now on. I had great success and I could see it getting better. And I couldn't see to this point, but I could see it's getting better. It's getting better. And I stayed the course. And it did.
0: So did you have mentors? Or is there or Are there actual teachers? Was it only books? Like, how did you do
1: it? No books. Oh. Very few books. My first mentor was an Orthodox Jewish rabbi. His name is Natan Schaefer. That's my guy. I met him by chance. There was a guy who was getting bullied that I stood up for. I didn't know he was Jewish, didn't know anything about the Jewish faith. And I ended up meeting him again in the program building. And he introduced me to Natan, who became my mentor. And then I, there's an old timer named, I'm saying, Gordon Haas, doing life. And he stepped in and started helping me. Then there's, there's a guy named MT. He stepped in and started helping me. And it's just like... People were waiting for me to do good, to step up and speak to me. At the same time, talking to people waiting for me to do bad, to get up and support that. You have supporters, whichever road you go down. We go to the bar right now, me and you, we start slamming down Jack Dane, somebody's going to cheer for us. And if we walk out of that bar and we walk into a rehab, somebody's going to cheer for us. Yeah. It just, what room do you want to walk in? Yeah. If somebody's yeah. going to cheer for you.
0: Yeah, that's very true. So, how'd you end up getting out? And that I must have been unbelievable.
1: Eight years. 20 hours a day, teaching myself the law, teaching myself programs, teaching myself, just working. And I reduced my sentence. I went on appeal and I made parole. I went before parole board and I convinced them that I was going to come home and do good things. I promised the chairman of the parole board I was going to come home and do good things. And I can tell you 22 years later, that lady still looks phenomenal for letting me out. Yeah,
0: I'm sure. I mean, no doubt.
1: Matter of fact, I gotta send her a thank you. I mean, she gave me a chance when she didn't have to.
0: So when people get out of prison, I'm an attorney, I do discrimination law, not criminal, but I did do a little bit of criminal. It's so hard, there's nowhere to go. The recidivism is ridiculous. I know you've worked with some programs. What did you do when you came out? When did I came not, home. Like to stay the course because it takes so much and you'd been in for so much of your youth.
1: The way I say the course is I spent the last eight years getting ready to be home. I didn't do the Department of Corrections and House of Corrections. They'll bring you to jail day one. They'll throw you in there and say, good luck. Best of luck to you. And you go to the jungle and you have to survive for 10 years. Oh, you got eight months left. And they'll come pull you out of the jungle and say, we're going to teach you how to follow a job resume because you're going home. You've been in the jungle fighting for your life for 10 years. A job resume is not going to help you. So... The last eight years of my sentence, I worked on bettering myself every single day. So when I walked out, I had an eight-year head start, not a three-month head start. And that was one of the biggest things that helped me stay afloat was the amount of time I had invested inside on staying outside.
0: That's amazing. So what did you do? Did you get a job? Were you able to get a job right away? Did you go home? No, what did you, is... like, what'd you do?
1: I could have went home to my family, but I had to say to myself, me plus my family for 18 years equaled Andre in and prison. Oh, right. I'm not blaming them, but me plus them didn't work. Yes. So let's not do that again. So I wanted to be a gang outreach worker. So I went to a program that was designed to help gang, gang leaders. So I went straight to a program and I'm working. It was like a job slash community house that I lived in. Mm-hmm. And the f- focus of the house was to go help gang members. So I stayed there for like six months. Then I transitioned to another company. I got my own apartment. And, but first thing I did was volunteer at the juvenile centers. Second thing I did was volunteer at my mom's church. Third thing I did, went back and volunteered at my old high school. Then four months out, I have a letter from a state director of juvenile services. I have a letter from a pastor, a letter from a principal saying, Andre does phenomenal work. I took those three letters to another place who gave me a job. Then I just kept going.
0: Oh, that is great. You That first apartment must have felt amazing.
1: The first apartment didn't have hot water. It was just horrible. No, oh. no. Oh, no. We actually, me and my buddy Will Dunn, we got the apartment, and the apartment was so trash. We we're happy to have it. I think we both stayed in total like three nights. Okay. We got, we got a hook up from somebody and one of his friends' mom took to some of the place. It was just not fit. It was a nice place, but the plumbing didn't work. And it was, but you know something? We were free. And I ended up gonna stay on my uncle's couch. And he went to go stay at his, um, his girl's house. But we had our apartment. We had keys. Yeah. It wasn't really fit for living. It was cold in there. We had keys. Yeah. And that's sometimes just having the keys matters. Yeah. That it wasn't the Taj Mahal, but it was ours. Yeah. I had a place to go.
0: So you're the ambassador of hope. How that's did done. you? Yeah. So how did you end up going to college and so on? Where, how did that, when did that come about in this?
1: This happened. It's called timing. I was supposed to get out of jail in April. The DOC refused to release me until November. And I thought they were being mean, and I disagreed with them, and I should have got out in April. But the fact that I got out in November was better for me. That last eight months, I did not want to do. But if you let me out in April, I'd have been in the summer, all summer in the street. Then what's the likelihood of me going to school in September after running around the streets for three months? Not good. Since I got out in November, it's holiday season like it is now, and I went straight into college January. Okay. It was like a short window, holiday, holiday, college, versus 90 days in the street during the summer, then thinking about going to college. So I got out in November. I went to a community college, and I signed up and took classes there. Then they have a matriculation agreement with other colleges. Mm-hmm. So I was taking college classes on three different campuses just for the experience. And then I had a friend, and mentor, Pat Dempsey, who introduced me to Boston College. And he got me a scholarship there. So I started going to BC. And I just kept going. But... 60 days out, I was in college. It says you want to surround yourself with people who are going in the direction you want to go in. Even if you don't understand, everybody in this school, in theory, is trying to be better. It's not like, hey, we're on the block and three people are talking about it. People show up to school with the intent of being better. And there was a large. I don't know about Russian people, it was like a large Russian community. And they had come from someplace and they were like in Boston, going to the school, and the see. hate to use the word, people come from other countries. They understood the power of education and they were going to get it. They were there and they weren't playing. I'm saying old ladies, old guys, they came with that. We understood the power of education and what it's going to do for my life. And being around those people, I never really hung out with none, didn't talk, to, couldn't take the name of any of them. But seeing their drive told me I was in the right place.
0: Yeah, definitely. So what'd you do after that?
1: I just kept going to school and my mentor tricked me out of going to school. Yeah, watch out for bad mentors. I had a bad mentor and we had similar stories being he was a gang member, turned his life around, now he runs this big organization. But he had dropped out of college his junior year. He didn't finish. Now I'm on track to graduate. So he was like, wait a minute, if he graduates, he's going to make me look bad. So he convinced me to drop out. Yeah, he got me. Because once I got to BC and I started leveling up and I'm in there and I'm going hard, he's like, oh, I need you at work. He would—he knew my school days and he would call me to come back instead of going to school. I need you to come to this meeting. I didn't think anything of it until three years later after I dropped out. Instead of saying, Dre, you're going to college, this is great. He's like, Dre, we don't need that. He kept telling me I didn't need it because he didn't finish. So watch out for bad mentors. Mentors should want you to go higher than them, not stay beneath them.
0: Yeah, definitely. And today, to this day, I'm sure you still have
1: mentors. I have tons, tons. I collect people. I collect mentors. (laughs) I can get a list of 30 of them right now.
0: Yeah, it's amazing. So did you finish college?
1: I did not finish college. I got to BC and I dropped out. And that was like the last time I was in school and I just started working. I stayed working and stayed working and I found out I had a passion. I turned from outreach to speaking. Then I started speaking and it just whole world opened up.
0: That's amazing. So you speak about what happened in your life and.
1: I do talk about what happened in my life, but that's only 8% of it. I want to talk about what's happening in your life and how you fix that. Because me fixing my life is great, but it doesn't fix your life. If your tire is flat and the guy across the street is fixing his tire, doesn't help your car. Yeah. You need someone to come up and work on your car. So yes, I fixed my flat. But I spend my talking about how to fix your flat.
0: So what is your message? when? My
1: you're... message is first, you have to take accountability for who you are. Then you have to clearly define what you want. And let's design a plane. What's inside of you that we need to remove to make it happen. You can't control your parents. You can't control your neighborhood. You can't control politics. You can't control your sports team. But you can control yourself. So I started working on the things that I had. I sat with a guy one time. I said, I don't like my dad. I'm mad at my mom. My sister gets on my nerves. And we went through the whole list. He said, how many of the people you just named do you have control over? I said, just one. He said, which one is that? I said, me. He said, well, let's work on that guy. Uh-huh. He said, if the other people show up, we'll work with them, but let's go with the one we can control. Yeah. And I had to stop focusing my energies on trying to fix Uplift whatever I want to call it, other people, and that's where we lose a lot of our energies. We don't want to go this by ourselves, so I don't want to go get better and leave my mom out, I want to get better and leave my brother out. But sometimes I got to get better than go back and get them,
0: yeah. So, how did you end up with the Harvard and the MIT, and how did you end up
1: after I, all the
0: years getting that dream?
1: Which I got out, yeah, and I just started doing the work. I had a path, I had a plan, I started working with kids in the city, and I rose to the, like the top outreach worker in the city, then colleges are like, hey, can you come over and tell us about the work that you're doing? We have this panel. And since I'm in Boston, that's MIT, Harvard, Northeastern. So I'm being invited to these colleges to speak on panels. And then once I spoke on the panels to the students and those panels to the teachers and the professors and those panels to the politicians and, oh, you had such great success. We want to hear about you. Come over here. Can you tell us in New York? Can you tell us in Pennsylvania? And it just kept going. And I had a guy, Jules Gothard. He said, if Andre can do this with gang members and prostitutes, what can he do with businessmen? And he came and he got me. They flew me to London. They flew me to room with Deutsche Bank and said, go for it. <laughs> We don't know what to tell you, but just go for it. And I went in there, and boom! And 20 years later, I'm still working at London Business School.
0: Yeah, love that. And is it the same message no matter what? It's always
1: the same message. You are the captain of your fate. You decide where your ship sails. You decide who gets on your ship. I don't know where I got this saying from. Might have been Tony Robbins. It's not the people in your life that mess up your life. It's the people you don't put out of your life. Mess it up so if you keep bad people on your team, you're gonna lose.
0: You still friends with that guy that had you? Huh? Nope, yeah. nope. <laughs> After three years, that
1: was it. How huh? you were like, I mean, this, is, this is the thing people who are bad for you aren't necessarily bad people, right? So there's,
0: there's somebody for everybody, they just somebody,
1: okay. somebody for everybody. I mean, like. I love the Patriots. Everyone in Atlanta hates them. I mean, you call it. I can go to Tampa, we can have an agreeable conversation.
0: Yes, you can.
1: (laughs) Any place (laughs) else, they don't want to hear my conversation. So it's not Tom Brady's a bad guy, but if you're in Atlanta, he's a bad guy. If you're in St. Louis, he's a bad guy. If you go to New York, they don't care. We beat y'all. So it's relative. But we keep people in our lives that are not good for us, and we know it.
0: Yeah, it's always freeing when you don't have any of those anymore.
1: You just but you will always have some. Yeah, you try to minimize them. You can't control. I had three people that just when my company were doing phenomenal until they weren't. You don't know what's in their life. So they wake up one day and they decide, I don't care anymore. I can't do anything about that. I try to encourage, I try to sit down and have meetings and let's break, no, no, they've quit on their life. And I recognize this, when you see somebody who quit out their way.
0: Yeah. And you would have to be really, really good at reading people. Super good. To have gotten where you are. There's just no way you wouldn't be able to just intuitively read people.
1: I read people to stay alive. I spent 14 years in maximum security prisons, and it's called Get It Right or Die. If I can't read somebody's intentions and their methodologies and what they're planning, then there's a good chance I'm going to be dead. So I had to learn to read people's intentions, who they're with, and all the variables that go with it so I could stay alive. So yes, I know how to read people extremely. And what I mean, because I read that you quit, I don't run away from you. And literally one of the people I brought him over here sat right in that chair about four days ago. And I was trying to, like, Hey, come on, come on, come on, come on. And they just weren't ready. So I say, okay, it's not that I disown you, but I just got to remove you from this position, put you in a position where you can't cause harm. You're entitled to quit. I quit before, but you're not entitled to drag me down with you. Yeah,
0: I I understand. So what do you tell somebody who who is dragging? And I'm not saying necessarily somebody who's working for you right now, but the person, I don't mean mental illness, but they're just dragging, they're not wanting to get out of bed. And how do you motivate somebody like that?
1: There's a saying that you can't help somebody that doesn't want to help. And that's wrong. There's just a step before it. It's called getting them ready to want help. I do both. I help people and I help people get ready to want help. So you just have Helping somebody means they're in one place. If somebody needs to get ready to be gassed up to want help, they're in another place. So the person who's not ready for help, they shouldn't be in charge of anything. They shouldn't be over anything. They shouldn't have influence over anything because their mindset is negative. So they need to be in a little sandbox by themselves and you can help them get ready to come into the big sandbox. But you can't have that person overseeing things because they're not in a position and wellness to do that. So I have no problem p- putting people in a position that they should be in for their own safety and other people's well-being. I'm not going to say, well, she's my friend, so I'm going to just leave her as a manager just because of Well, oh, that's my buddy. He can keep driving my son's school bus even though I know he's had a track crap problem. No.
0: No, definitely not. Now, how about that person? They know that there's something they're here in this life to do, but they're not doing it. They're still doing their nine to five or they're doing something else. And they're not taking action on that dream, that vision, that goal. There's you. Yeah, go ahead.
1: They can call me. I love you. We can do a group call with your folks. We can gas them up. And what I learned in the third grade from Miss Oliver was most kids could read and I couldn't. And it wasn't because I was stupid, she told me. It was just I learned different. And she took the time to teach me my learning style. Now I read fine, but I don't function and process information like the masses. I'm not sure. I'm just different. Like there's people who fit in subgroups. Some people learn this way by doing, some people learn by feeling, some people learn by experience, some people learn by following a leader. Yep. I learn by feeling. If I don't have like an emotional connection to what I'm doing, I won't take it. That's just me. So reading stuff off the board won't connect to me. You have to make me feel it. So she got me books and she got me lessons that created connectivity and got me excited about what I was doing. I could just couldn't do the one, two, three ABCs and be excited. He taught me my learning style. So your audience needs to learn to find their learning style.
0: Yeah, that is such a good point. And you don't hear that enough that some people can just read it and they got it and even for i mean i'm not some like joe cook or anything or i don't watch the cooking shows but if i'm with you and i'm watching you make something and there's that sensory experience and i'm like wait wait, wait, show me again how'd you do that then i can do it
1: and oftentimes i've been in the room with some of the most phenomenal ideas known to man. I've been at Genius Network. I've been at War Room. I've been at CO Alliance, EO, YPO, London Business School, Harvard, MIT, the White House. I've been in a room, churches, with some of the most phenomenal idea people ever. And one main thing that I've seen of why some of these ideas hasn't come to pass is they want to be the idea person, the creator, the negotiator, the lawyer. And I'm like, you might be the best idea person in that space, but you might be horrible at negotiating don't make yourself a negotiator just because you can. And I tell people, you might be the best pitch man, but you might have horrible ideas. So you need to go find a great negotiator. Like I said, what's it, uh, the guy who has himself as a lawyer has a fool for a client? Yeah. Go find a lawyer to represent you. Don't represent yourself. But now, with this age of entrepreneurship and we got all this technology, well, I can do everything. I can be the idea creator, I can be the program designer, I can be the negotiator, I can be the closer. No, you're doing too much. Yeah. And you might not be good at the most important thing, which is the sale. Yeah. So go back and find somebody who's great at selling and you go be great at creating <laughs> and then you will do a lot better. Yeah. I've watched so many people derail their dreams because they refuse to let other people do what they do well and what they don't do well.
0: That's true. Now, how do you help people find like-minded individuals, find their tribe, find those people? There's so many. Not find the guy who said, Hey, come with me. You don't need college, but yeah. find those like-minded
1: even that guy, that mentor, as much as we don't talk now, from zero to year three, he was the best mentor ever. I'm, I'm gonna say nice. from zero <laughs> To year I three, it. I got it. He was phenomenal. I learned so much information and insights from that man that I would not be here without him. But from year three to year four, he <laughs> we went off the rails. <laughs> he served
0: so, his purpose for a little bit of time. Learning
1: to let go and move on is a problem with me because I get attached and I stay too long. I can't tell you how many people, I do counseling for couples, individuals, how many couples that I've sat in front of, and I ask them, when did you realize this relationship was over? Two years ago, four years ago, six years ago. Why are you still here? They're like... I don't know. Literally. That's the first question. How long have you realized that you don't love this person anymore? And it's never two weeks. Yeah, no. It's always it's, two yeah. years or better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I realized about three years ago that I was done with this. And you're still sitting here functioning as if this is a marriage or a relationship. When did you realize you hated this job and it was killing you? About five years ago. Why are you not looking for something else? I don't know. I'm used to it. The devil you know is better than the devil you don't know. And so when I get with people, it's, are you happy? Not does it pay you, not does it give you fame? Are you, ask me if I'm happy in my job, ecstatic. Don't want to trade my job with anybody. Hey, you want, no, I love my job because it fits me. Ask that to somebody else. Do you love what you do and are you happy doing it? You're not going to get two yeses most chances. Next question is, why are you still doing it? Because I don't know how to get into another lane or to exercise my inner gifts. And that's where people like yourself can come in and help them process, are you happy? And are you in love with what you're doing? And <laughs> do you want to actually go live your gift?
0: Yeah, no, that's sad. If you're not doing what lights you up,
1: I tell you what, it wouldn't work because the world will shut down for motivation. I'll see somebody to a job, I'll go through the airport, and I'll see the guy moving boxes, I go through the airport, I see the guy, lady who's gonna check me at the counter. I go through some, I see the Uber driver, I go down, I see the police officer, I go down, I see the librarian, I go down, I see the guy who's driving the bus. It's different jobs. And I'll say, I never want that job. And that's motivation for me to go do what I love. To do. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want that. There's some tech people, there's movie producers. I mean, there's singers. I don't want to be a singer. I don't wanna be entertained. I do not want to be on stage singing and dancing. I'm okay. I won't mind being a baseball player. But the baseline is I look at what I used to have a job that I hated, then called being a gang member. I hated that job, but I did it well. I was really good at it.
0: You were number three.
1: <laughs> and I had to let it go. So, okay, I'm great at this, but it's killing me. So just because you're good at something doesn't mean it's good for you.
0: Yeah. Do you have a message of hope that you want to give?
1: The message of hope is if you can hear this, you have a chance. I live across the street from a graveyard. They don't have a chance anymore. They're done. Go by a graveyard. They're done. They are 100% over. And bless them all, but they've passed on. If you're still here, and you're in this conversation, that means you're in a space that you can impact the world. I was going to say, why not change the world? Every person you can think of, from JFK to MLK to Magon to Nelson, you go down to Deepak Chopra, everybody who's impacted the world is always one person. Mother Teresa, one person. <laughs> this person, one person. The Pope, one person. I mean, everybody's one person. Genghis Khan, one person. I've yet to meet somebody who's multiple people. It's always one person. It's always, why can't you be that one person?
0: It's the whole, why not you? I had a thing in my car that said, God never gave us a dream without giving us the strength to carry it out. Everybody has a vision. And Angela Manuel Davis, who I'm just such a groupie for, she's so uplifting and she's amazing. And she says, God put that dream in your head for a reason. So if you can see it, you can be it. And I love how you said, yeah, we're not in that graveyard yet. So. To do it.
1: I see my trumpet? When I was in the ninth grade, my friends convinced me that playing the trumpet was stupid. And I got rid of it.
0: Aww.
1: When I got rid of it, I got rid of my purpose. What made me happy? What gave me passion? That gave me pumps my, my whole life went off a cliff. So when I got back on my feet, I keep it there as a reminder, nobody's going to steal my dreams ever again. Yeah. Never again will you tell me what I can't do because you don't agree with it. Yeah. Yeah. So, no.
0: No, to thine own self be true. Yeah. All day. Yay. Oh, I love that. Is there anything else that I should have asked you that I didn't ask you?
1: Well, for the people who are home and think that this is a great podcast, we're glad you tuned in. And this is a great interview. The interview was actually happening so we can get to this point to say that we know you're there. We can see you. (laughs) We're actually looking at you. And we believe that you're phenomenal. In the next 52 weeks, you're going to find your reason to be hopeful and that you matter. We're not doing this because we just want to be on the phone talking to each other. We're doing this because we want you to know that you matter, we care, and that your dreams can actually come true. If I can go from the basement of a prison to the White House, there's nothing that you can't do. And there's nothing that we won't help you do. So whatever you're going through, it's going to make you stronger. And whatever you've been through has already made you stronger. So we're with you. We love you. And we're doing this for you. One-on-one, straight up across the table. We want to see you rise up and be that person. Whatever greatness is for you. My uncle was a bus driver and he loved it. He bowled and he loved going bowling. Those are the two things. He loved driving his bus and he loved bowling. Two things that I don't subscribe to, but he loved it. And he spent his whole life bowling. Every two days a week, he's at the bowling alley. He's in every league known to man. He loved it. Doesn't have to be race car driver. Do what you love and you will have a fulfilled life. And your family will remember you as having a fulfilled life. So don't compare your dreams to anybody else. Compare them to what you love. And know that we're here to say, keep going. Why not you? And let's get it done.
0: Yeah. And anybody who wants to reach Dre, all his contact information and everything else will be, of course, on the website in the show notes. Thank you so much for being a guest today on 52 Weeks of Hope.
1: Touchdown again.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode and take with you Andre's messages of belief, healing, and you've got this, so keep going. Such great messages to take into your week ahead. Tune in next week for another amazing episode with psychotherapist and personal development coach, Anna Marcolin. Anna knows the depths of no confidence, shame, and loneliness, but she's done the work, come into her own, and now helps you do the work on your inner demons too. She lets you know how you can keep going no matter what you're going through and do so with grace and courage. I love Anna. I know you will too. And that's next week. So be sure to tune in. Be sure to join us in our Facebook group at 52 Weeks of Hope, where we get to chat with each other. I love talking to you. And there's also different modalities in there that you can tune into at any time. And we meet up together once a month and get to chat with each other. Anyway, I just love talking to you guys in there. So that's it, 52 Weeks of Hope Facebook. If you're enjoying the podcast, be sure to tell the love and tell two of your friends. I'm Lauren Abrams. Thanks for listening.